If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. We're in a series on what it is to be a church member. And so we're going through the book of Titus and looking at its message. <clears throat> First week, when we started this series, verses 1, 1 through 4, we looked at Titus, or Paul as he writes to Titus, shows that the centrality of the Word of God to the church, how it was central to his, um, to his ministry, and how it was to be central to the church. And then as we went on into uh, the rest of chapter 1, we see that there's this role called elders, and elders are called in to, uh, to guard the Word of God, that it would be preached in truth, and to protect from false teachers, because false teachers are prevalent that distort the truth. And now as we go into chapter 2, we're going to begin seeing a picture of the church in everyday life. This is We're going to go through, we're going to see what does the church look like, and Paul is going to walk through a description of that. And as we do, I want to point us back to a text that probably many of us are, are familiar with. In Matthew chapter 5, and I think it's up here on the screen, verses 13 through 16, as I think it is. Uh, it's a common verse that, that many of us know. And, and this is Jesus. It's the beginning of his ministry. He's doing the Sermon on the Mount, a famous sermon. And this is very close to the very beginning of the sermon. He says, you are the salt of the earth. He's talking to the people, those who will believe in him. He's giving a description of a believer, a description of what it is to be a citizen of God's kingdom. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." So here we have two descriptions of a Christian. We are to be salt and light in this world. And Jesus is not giving mere suggestions. He's saying this is, this is who you are. This is how you're called to live. You're called to be different. You're called to shine forth that you would direct people to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that's what we're looking at today. This description that we're looking at in Titus is what it is to, to be salt and light. It's not an exhaustive description but it's certainly as Paul is writing to Titus, who is at uh, the churches in Crete, remember Crete, uh, horribly, sexually, immoral, just, uh, it was the way they described it. And so he's writing on how they will shine brightly there in Crete. And so I want to encourage you to stand here. We stand at the reading of God's word. We do that uh, simply to say God's word is like no other word. And so today we're going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's, right, it's short, so hopefully we'll be able to all make it through standing. Verse 1, But as for you, Paul writing to Titus, as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves too much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. 
Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may, not, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing, good, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." Let's pray. Our Father, I I thank you for this text. And I pray you give us wisdom to understand. I pray that your Spirit pours forth grace, that we would see how it is that we are to live this way, how that, God, this description is only possible because of your Spirit who empowers us to not only be made new, but to live differently to live as salt and light in this earth. God, I pray, give us wisdom today. God, give us a proper view of what it is to live as a believer in this world. And God, may we be encouraged that your Spirit is with us, enabling us, encouraging us, comforting us, strengthening us, that we may truly live as you have called us to. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So I want to just say, in the beginning, what this text is not. <clears throat> it would be easy for us to read something like this and to be able to say, wow, Paul is saying, wow, you're just supposed to really be morally good, upstanding people. Like, you're just supposed to be really moral. And remember last week, we talked about the counterfeit gospel of morality. So there's definitely a danger if we only seek to do good things, but we have not been changed by Christ. And so that interpretation or that understanding would be too shallow if we stop there. If we saw this text and we say, well, we're supposed to be good people. We would, we would miss the point of the text. So um, let's make sure we go in deeper. Uh, so the first point, the life of a church member is continually transformed by the word of God. The life of a church member is continually transformed by the Word of God. A couple of weeks ago, as I said, we focused on the centrality of God's Word in the church, and then we see that God has actually placed uh, positions within the church, like elders, to to preach the Word, to protect against false teaching. And now in verse 1, Paul commands the teaching of God's Word. But notice what he, he says. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. So he's saying, don't just teach God's word, but teach what fits with sound doctrine. The false teachers have come and they said, you really want to be saved? Well, you need to be circumcised. You need to do these works and then you'll be saved. And those don't fit into salvation. Those don't fit into what we see in God's word. So Paul is telling Titus, teach the word of God and what fits. What are the implications of God's word? And when we begin to see that, we realize when we read God's Word, it's not just so we do good at Bible trivia. Like, I hope you know, when we read, it's not just to gain facts, but we're actually understanding God's Word and the implications for how we saying that we are to live. So that means reading the Bible um, is not just reading about history, which when you're reading the Old Testament, sometimes it can feel like that. And we'll just kind of read and say, well, that was neat, and we'll walk away. That's where a lot of small groups, a lot of Bible studies will stop short. They'll read and say, well, that was, that was really good. And then they'll walk away, but they never get to what fits with this teaching. 
What are the implications of this teaching? How is God, our Father, shepherding us through his word that we would live differently? And so Paul is, is telling Titus, teach the word of God and now show them what fits, how their lives are to live in reflection of God's word. So when we look at these descriptions Paul is giving in these verses with older men and older women and so forth, he's not just calling us to be good people, he's calling us to be something very Christian. And in verses 2 through 10, um, Paul is going to describe what it looks like to, be a trans- to have a transformed life. Because what we learn in God's Word and what we're going to see very clearly next week is that when God saves us, He makes us new. When God saves us, He transforms us. Because God is holy, all those whom He saves, He makes holy. Does that make sense? And so we're reading today, we're reading on what it looks like to live holy. Next week, we're going to see how he actually makes us holy. So in one sense, we're kind of going in reverse chronological order, but that's the way he wrote it, so we're going we're gonna to stick with the way Paul did it. So the description that we have here is not mere suggestion. So as we read this, and older men, older women, younger men, younger women, employees, we'll kind of throw that in there as, as slaves. Um, these are not suggestions. And no, let's not just limit it to the older men are only doing these things and they don't do anything else or, and so forth, but very much if we looked at the rest of Scripture, we could see how almost all of the descriptions we have will be, would be able to be applied to every age group. So Paul is showing the natural flow of what happens when Scripture enters into a believer and it transforms that believer. That's, that's what we're looking at today. And so we're going to look at five snapshots of, of the Christian life, of the church. He's going to zoom in on older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and slaves. And all of these would make up the church, and all of these would most likely make up an individual household too. So what we have here is Paul is really writing about what life looks like in an everyday household, what it looks like for the life of the church. It's a picture of the church in everyday life. So picture number one, we're just going to go through as Paul has written it. Number one, older men. Here Paul shows shows us that older men are to stand before us as pillars of that we're to look up to. He says they're to be sober-minded, which means they're level-headed. They're to be dignified, which means that their actions are actually leading others to desire to respect them. So their very actions call for others to look up to them and to respect them. They're self-controlled, meaning they do not respond irrationally. Their emotions are not running rampant, but they're controlled. They continue to grow in faith and love and patience with others. That's where we see that they're sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. When I was reading this, I just began to think of Paul in, chapter, in Philippians chapter 3, 14. He writes, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And, and when I read the description of the older men, that's just kind of what kept coming to me. These are men who keep pursuing Christ. Who just because they are increasing in age, they're not slowing down. But if anything, they're speeding up in their pursuit of Christ. And uh, I actually, I began to think of many of the men here at Timberline. I specifically thought of uh, thought of Roy. Wherever I can see him now, <laughs> I saw him earlier. But specifically, I thought of Roy. Um, he's such a neat man. 
And we have many neat men within the congregation that just pursue God, but, but he loves to grow in God's word. His love is clearly revealed in his love for his wife, in his love for the church, and his service. Um, we have others like that that are here, but we have older men. So the point is, older men are pillars of the faith, showing the church how to finish the race well. They're Pillars of the faith, showing the church how to finish the race well. That's what we have as, as Paul is looking at this first picture. He's looking at men. And remember, all of these people come from Crete, which means they're all sexually immoral. And what uh, verse 9 says, in, or verse 12 says in chapter 1, they were all liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So these men have become very transformed by the gospel, that they are to be pillars of the faith. Picture number two, older women. And I'm just going to let you figure out where you fit in these. I'm not going to assign categories. I mean, we're just going to use the ones he gives. You figure out which one you, you want to be in. Just going to leave it there. Paul, in verse 3, says, likewise. Look, older women, likewise. Well, what is likewise? Likewise is connecting back to verse 1 and 2 about the older men. And he said, likewise, they are to be reverent in behavior. So as the older men are pillars of the faith, so the older women are to be pillars of the faith. And the word reverent in behavior means they demonstrate a heart near to God. Meaning they love God. They're continually drawing after him. Again, just like the older men, they're not slowing down in the pursuit of Christ. If anything, they're speeding up in their pursuit. As they look forward to the day Christ returns or the day that they will meet him, Paul then after that, he negatively and positively describes what it looks like to have a heart near to God. He says that these women are to not be slanders or slaves to much wine. That's the negative. These women, they're not to live reckless lives being drunk, escaping the problems of the world. They're not to be gathering together with others, slandering others, tearing others down. It's easy as we grow older to become more cynical. It's easy. No matter what stage of life. As we grow older, we become more cynical. We become more focused on self. But what we have here is that these older women, as they're drawing close to Christ, rather than becoming self-focused and cynical, they're becoming others-focused and desiring to build others up. And that's what leads us to they build, one, they build others. In verse, uh, at the end of verse 3, it says, they're to teach what is good, to be in, in verse 4, and so train the young women. So what we have is that now because of their love for God, they're purposely looking out, intentionally looking for other women that they can invest in. They're not saying things like, I've done my time serving. I'm done serving now. I will now sit back and allow the rest of the church to serve me. It's not what they're doing. But if, if you know church life, that's very much what can happen. It's very much what can happen. But these are women who are saying, no, we're not backing away. We're moving forward. We're pressing in on the life of the church. We're looking for our daughters, for other younger women of the faith who we would come along and help them live godly lives. So rather than using their age as a reason to disengage, they're using it as a reason to engage all the more. What a powerful testimony. Remember, these are not suggestions. Paul is giving us what the life of the church looks like. As we live as salt and light in this world, 
Our actions will be different than that of unbelievers, of unbelieving communities. He's calling us to live very differently. So let me say this. Women discipling other women is extremely powerful role within the church, and it's a necessary role within the church. Remember, um, as older women, you have the privilege of training young women to live godly lives, to, to share the wisdom that you have. Have you have tried to follow God's word, have fallen and stumbled and have succeeded in times? To share those with other women. And when you do this, I want to share this also. You're not only helping the younger women, you're also helping the entire church, but you're specifically helping the elders. Remember, last week, we see, or last couple of weeks, elders are called to teach the entire church, which that's why really the only person we're in this description uh, that are called to teach are women. Because I think Paul has already highlighted in the last couple of weeks, men are to teach. Men are to be growing in the word of God, that they would become elders, that they would teach everyone within the church. So some women might be going, so do we teach anyone? What do we do? How does this work? And he's specifically saying, oh, you teach? Or you have a very powerful role in teaching, and we specifically would desire you to teach younger women so that the elders or other men would not come alongside younger women where they might be tempted into sexual immorality. Because when we look at the church, we've seen tons of pastors who have gone into sexual immorality, elders, people within the church, that that is characteristic of. And so here, built into the life of the church on how we are to be salt and light is also this role in which we protect one another, in which we say to the elders, Thank you for instructing us. We will take the teaching and we will specifically go to the younger women. What a powerful role that is. Specifically, when I was thinking about this, just there's many women, I think, that do this well, uh, but I had the privilege of meeting with Bev and... I'm looking for her, though. She doesn't even come. Roy steps out when I talk about him. Darla doesn't even come. So... We're just going to talk about Bev then. No. <laughs> but specifically, I was able to talk about them or meet with them. And, and they have such a desire to love other women. They're starting the Bible study again this Thursday and they've been, or Tuesday. And they've been doing it for years. Where they just invite other women to come together, that they would meal together, laugh together, talk about God's word together, share life together, encourage one another. What an amazing testimony. That's Titus chapter 2 being lived out. There's many other ways it's, it's lived out also here, but that's specifically one. And so as we look at that, older women pursue godliness and help lead younger women into greater godliness. I want to encourage you, if, if you're an older woman, and you, you classify yourself that, how are you investing in younger women? How can you begin doing that? It might not look like leading a class. It might look something different, having another woman over and, just doing life together on a regular basis. I just want to encourage you. How are you doing that? How can you begin taking steps that way? If you're at, and if you wonder, talk to Bev. Talk to Donna. Ask them how they do it. Ask them how you might do it. So now we're going to switch and we're going to look at younger women. And let us not forget, as we go into younger women, we are looking at what the primarily the older women are helping do with the young women. So as we read this, older women, this is very much where we're asking that you help here and, and, and women, 
We're asking that you look to those who are older, that they would help you grow in godliness. And so as we look here at this picture, it seems as though Paul is zeroing in on the home life of the young women. In verse 4, we see train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. Again, everything kind of revolves around the home life. What we have here is, is Paul's encouraging the older women to to wisely share how the gospel affects the home. In verse 5, it says, they're to be submissive to their husbands, embracing the role God has given both to men and women uh, within marriage. And notice what happens, because so often we think of submission as a four-letter word today. At least I think oftentimes women can, as we begin talking about submission and marriage and men. Um, And we're going to look at submission again later in this passage with regards to the slaves. But here we see that at the end of verse 5, because of submission, we have that the word of God may not be reviled. Let me encourage you, women, when you're submitting to your husbands, your life testifies to the truthfulness and power of God's word. It's not that it's easy, but it testifies to the power of God's word of transforming us, making us new like him, that we would be salt and light. We also see, um, again, we'll look at submission again when we look at slaves. And, um, but in Crete, surly as it is today in America, we have, uh, we have women that when they view the home life, they um, are abandoning the home life. They, they look at the home and they go, well, we don't want to be there. We, we, we want to feel important. So we want to go find a job somewhere else. We start looking elsewhere, um, whether this is so that they feel secure, whether it's so that they can have more money, uh, whether it's so that they can compete with the Joneses. There's so many reasons why women are working outside the home today. Um, but what we see here is that as Paul begins to talk about the home, he's saying specifically to younger women, focus on the home. So is Paul saying a woman cannot work outside the home? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. Yes, no. I mean, it's, it's not just yes. It's not no. What we have to see, he's saying, women, your primary role is the loving of your husband and your children. That is your primary role as you have become a believer in Christ and your identity is Him as Christ works through you. Your primary role is in the working of the loving of your children and your husband. So, so can a woman work outside the home? Well, my mom, the way she walked through this is my sister, who's about 18 months older than me, uh, when she could begin driving, that's when my mom decided it would be okay for her to work outside the home. That's when she would say, okay, my children, they're able to, to kind of be more mobile at this moment. Uh, and they also probably in sports and all this other crazy stuff, so they don't even come home after school. And so she felt much more free at that moment. And she still works. Actually, she just retired as of like last year. Um, but the point that Paul is making is that women, you will not find your identity at work. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ. Don't be looking at work to find your identity, to find security, to find your comfort. You will keep looking and you will never be satisfied. But rather, he is saying your identity is in Christ. Again, we'll see that much more clearly next week. 
And because of Christ, you're given the beautiful role of loving your husband and your children. And I know that there are some who wonder, how important do I really feel when I'm at home and dealing with all the things that are around home? Let me just say, discipling your children towards Christ, that they would come to faith, grow in faith, and spend eternity with God, not apart from God, is not a lowly, unimportant position. Loving your husband so that when he comes home, he looks forward to coming home, that he might joyfully shepherd his family towards Christ is not a lowly position and one of unimportance, but it is one that the Bible places great importance on. So do not think that you need to look outward to find great importance. Your role within the home has eternal implications upon it. So I realize that there's a host of questions that could be asked here. Well, what if I'm a single mom? Can I work then? Nope, that's certainly a good question. Well, what if my husband doesn't actually make enough money to provide for the necessary things that we need? Well, that's a good question. How do you engage about those things? Let me say, let's not wrestle with them apart from God's word, but with God's word. So often we want to just make our decisions. Well, we just need more money. We just need this. And we don't come to God's word. So I want to encourage, let's wrestle with tough questions with God's word. Let us pray for wisdom and discernment that also we would know the right, that we would know what our motivations are for desiring a job outside the home. What are the true motivations? And let's spend time praying with other believers, specifically women. If you're married, pray with your husbands. Pray with them. And husbands, shepherd well here. Don't just think, well, we could use more money, but shepherd well. And then, let me say, younger women, look to the older women. And older women realize that they're probably not looking towards you. Because as we all know, when we're young, we think we know what's right. And we, we don't need to ask others because we, we're good enough, we can figure it out. So to the older generation, help us, help me. <laughs> I need help. Our younger women need help. Our young men need help. Um, seek us out. Help us make these decisions. Because you have gone through these decisions. You have, you have walked this road before us. We are doing nothing that's new underneath the sun. So help us now from your perspective of not only growth with the gospel, but as you look back at life, how you might help us make better decisions for the glory of God. So younger women demonstrate godliness by their love and devotion to their husbands and children. This is the role that you have. It's a beautiful role. It's a beautiful role, necessary. And so now we're going to turn to younger men, and it appears that Paul combines Titus into this. Most likely, he's talking to younger women, he go, well, younger men, he goes, well, Titus, you are a young man too. And so he combines Titus into this. So our picture number four is young men and Titus. And so strangely, when we come to this, when we look at verse 6, likewise, urge, which is a command, the, the younger men to be self-controlled. It's one word. That's all we have. You see how much he gave younger women? That's because the word self-controlled is like this massively pregnant word. It's not that the young men were like doing so good that he's like, well, just, just work on a little bit of self-control. It is a massive word about bringing your entire life underneath the conformity of the gospel. 
Most likely in Crete, we have uh, young men who are very uh, uncontrolled. They are overrun by their animal instincts. Remember that the philosopher in chapter 1 says they're like evil beasts. They would have pursued the next best thing. They would be the ones in line on September 19th for the new iPhone. Not because they need a new phone, because that's why I was there. I had my old one for three years. It was dying. I upgraded. So I feel weird using this illustration, but... uh, I don't feel like I did it because I was uncontrolled, but they're the ones who were there because they just needed the next best thing. That's why they were there, and they trade the phone. The guy, Luke, went with me. The guy that was standing with us, well, he had the iPhone 4, 4S, 5, 5S, now 6. <laughs> really? Mine's lasted three years. Just walking through them, always needing the next best thing. They have endless appetites for sex and money. They're very much like what we see on TV today, where TV literally just broadcasts men as brainless idiots just desiring more money and more sex and drinking all the time. That's the picture that we so much get from TV. But But Paul is writing, oh, but because of Christ, Because of the gospel, men, you have been made new. You have new desires. You're fighting those old desires, but you're beginning to have new desires. Desires to grow in your faith that you know that because of Jesus Christ, you're also united to Jesus and that his spirit lives in you so that no longer do you desire to sit at the computer surfing porn. No longer do you desire just to look for the next night when you might get drunk. No longer do you do everything you can simply to make more money, no matter how many morals you must compromise to do that. But because of our faith, we're being changed. Men, we're beginning to think about who we are in Christ. Men, we're we're letting our identity in Christ begin to affect our decisions. And this is where Paul switches over to Titus in verse 7. Showing yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Paul is literally saying there, your life is to be a pattern for others to follow in good works, in godliness. Let me just ask you, have you ever considered that your life is to be a pattern for other men? pattern for other believers on how to grow in godliness? And that's one of the reasons God has given us his spirit, that our words and their actions would be different, that they'd be conformed to that of Christ, that because God is loving and his spirit now lives in us, his love would flow out of us. And when we begin to understand that our words and our actions begin to complement one another, they, they live in harmony with one another, so that the outsiders, when they, when unbelievers, when they begin looking at our lives, will have nothing wrong to say about us. That's what we see here at the end of verse 7. He says, be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity. So we have actions. Now we have our words, our teaching, and sound speech. This is verse 8. That cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Now it doesn't mean that no one's still going to have bad things to say about us as as believers, but what it means is that when our words and our actions are in harmony, we disarm unbelievers from attacking us. They're still going to attack. They will still say things. But it won't be because of the sinful things we're doing. But they're attacking us just as really they attack Christ. Remember, 
He came to this world, lived a perfect life, and was persecuted and went to the cross. Not because he did anything wrong, but because he lived differently. And one thing we see throughout God's word is that when believers are persecuted, it is a thing of joy, which sounds so weird, but it's a means of authenticating our faith in Christ. It validates who we truly are. When we see that we are suffering as Christ suffered, for growing in faith, for being like him, for living as he has called us to, it's a way of showing that we truly are saved. So we see as young men by, a young man by faith seeks to have his words and actions working in harmony together for the spread of the gospel. There is an outworking that takes place. Men, as we have our words and actions working together, others notice. Others notice. That's really to be a characteristic of the entire church. And, and I'll say this is hard. This is hard. Like, having self-control, realizing that we're not just to be spontaneously running after everything, making whimsical decisions, but actually being serious in life. Not, not having fun. Not, not being joyful. But being serious in that we, we think about our words and actions. And I think this is something that us young men, we don't do very well because we don't see it modeled well. And so we need prayer there. And, and older men, we need you to help us make these decisions. We, we need wisdom, discipleship here. And we need you to, to come alongside of us and say, hey, you're not living very smart, right? and, and we need that. We, we just need bluntness sometimes. We just don't need you coddling us all the time. Sometimes we just need you to come upside, upside, up to the side of us and literally just say, you're not living as God has called you to be. We just need that sometimes. And men, we like to, to fall back. We like to say, no, coddle me. No. We don't need this coddling all the time. There's times for it. But I think where we're at today, we need godly men coming alongside other men who are struggling in their faith and being firm with us. Not ungracious, not unloving, but firm and willing to walk with us. So now we change to our, our, we sh- shift to our last picture, number five, bond servants and so we're addressing slaves. Obviously, we don't have slaves here. So how does this apply? Well, the closest kind of equivalent we have to this here in America would be the employee-boss relationship. It's not a perfect equivalent because here we have bond servants, which could very well be the servants within the house. So we could very well be talking about household relationships. But nonetheless, we're talking about the heart attitude of someone in a submissive position to that of an authority position. Which, again, wives to husbands, which again, all of us, which we'll see in chapter 3, to uh, the authorities that are in this world, which is how the church is to Christ. Again, this, is, this idea of submission is very prevalent all throughout the Bible. And so we have here this heart attitude of what does it mean for us as an employee to be submissive to our authority? And obviously... Um, Probably here in Crete, the slaves would hate their masters. They would steal from them. They would not desire their good. They would have no desire to help them. But then we come to this description 
Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. So if you're wondering, what do they need to be submissive to? In everything. They're to be well-pleasing, meaning they desire the good of their master. Now, I just want you to think, how brightly would an employee shine today when he desires greatly the good of his boss? What would that look like? So many things. Inviting their boss over for Thanksgiving, writing cards, encouraging, coming alongside, staying late, working hard. So many ways we could show what does it mean to actually love your boss, to seek their good. That would stand out in a world like this. That would be salt and light. We have is that, um, and we see again, Notice what the result is of their submission in verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Again, we see the power of submission within the gospel. And again, when we begin thinking about submission, let us ultimately remember that Christ left heaven, came to earth as a man, with flesh, submitted himself to all authorities, ultimately that he would be crucified. So Christ perfectly demonstrates submission. And because of his submission to the Father, to the earthly authorities, the gospel has come about that there would be salvation for all people. Let us never think that submission is not powerful or a great act of God. It is extremely powerful. So whether we're looking at the roles of women to to their wives, to husbands, slaves to masters, children to their parents, all of us in regards to state and authority and government, all of us as the church submits to Christ the head, submission is a powerful testimony of the gospel. And here we say it literally adorns the gospel, which that is a very interesting saying. It literally is saying, we, 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 this is is strange, weird, very powerful. We, as believers, make the gospel look beautiful. That's weird. How do we wrestle with that? So we do need to be a little bit careful, because we do not make God's word look attractive like we would take birthday paper and wrap a trash can. That's not what we're doing here. We're not making what's not attractive appear appear attractive. We're not deceiving. Rather, we are serving to reveal the attractiveness of the gospel. So if the gospel was to be compared to a beautiful diamond, then as believers, as the church, as individuals, we are like the ring that holds the diamond that it would be displayed does that make sense? We, we are there to reveal the attractiveness of the gospel. We hold out the gospel so it will shine forth in all of its beauty. So we don't, we don't make what's not attractive attractive. We are simply holding up the beauty of the gospel through our transformed lives in Christ. So an employee willingly and joyfully seeks to submit and serve his employer for the spread of the gospel. For the spread of the gospel. When you go to work, you're going for the spread of the gospel. The way you treat your boss is for the advancement of the gospel. 
that they would see a transformed life, that they would see Christ's love in you flowing to them. So as we, let me say two additional truths about this passage. We can say a lot more. Number one, these aren't in your bulletin. Living a salt and light requires community. Everything about this requires community. Everything here in chapter 2 is about the church. It's about men helping men, women helping women, all of us helping one another, that we'd be examples to one another, training one another. We have older men, sober-minded, sound in faith, in love and steadfastness, dignified, older women, likewise, reverent in behavior, teaching the younger men, younger women. We have young men. Make sure that you are a pattern of good works, a model of good works. And then we have wives. Your submission helps the gospel not to be reviled. Um, we have slaves. Your submission to authorities and how you love them points to the power of the gospel, that it continually goes forth. What we have here is this modeling of the Christian faith, this discipleship that's taking place all throughout the church life. So we're family. When we're saved, we're made brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would be family. And as family, we come alongside one another, instructing one another, helping one another. That's what it is to do what is fit, or to teach what accords with sound doctrine, the doctrine that we are in community with Christ, that we are family, means that we help one another. So the church is to be a cross-generational disciple-making organism. Meaning we all cross our generational lines, coming into community with one another, spurring us on and towards godliness. Number two, living as salt and light is a result of God's word. Everything that is talked about comes from the Word of God. You will see unbelievers model some of these, but the point is that as the church models it, we're doing it from a transformed life pointing back towards Christ. We say the only reason we love, the only reason we submit, the only reason we do good works is because of God, what He has done in us and is doing through us. So let me say that if you're not growing in God's word, then you're not knowing, embracing, and loving the implications of God's word. This will seem like a job to you. You will see Titus 2, and you will see a list of law versus the overflow of joy that comes from who you are in Christ. So you might be saying, well, is this actually realistic? Like, can we actually live this way? Is this too high of a standard? Can wives really joyfully, willingly submit to their husbands? You decide. Um, can employees willingly seek the good of their willingly seek the good of their bosses? Can young men really live self-controlled lives? Really? Can our old men really be pillars of the faith? Can our old women really be um, pillars of the faith, drawing others into holiness? The long answer is yes. That's exactly what next week's sermon is all about. So the entire time next week, we're going to look at how does this come about? The short answer, and I just want to show you Titus 2, 14. So look at verse 14, and this is it. This is our last thing today. <clears throat> we have verse 14. Jesus, who gave himself 
for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what we have is, is notice the words, to purify for himself a people. The reason the church is salt and light is because Jesus purchased at the cross a people for himself and all the people whom he redeemed, he purchased, he purifies. So do you see it? You see the natural flow? He redeems in order to purify. The purpose of the redeeming is for the purifying. That is why we can say that all believers are to grow in holiness because the, the reason you have been saved is that you would grow and be purified in Christ. And in one sense, we are made holy at salvation and are being made holy all throughout our Christian life. And we'll look at that more next week. So yes, we can do this. The only reason is because of what God has done in us and for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Is it a high standard? It is, yeah, it is very high. It is too high to do apart from the spirit of God. It's too high. But with the spirit, we can live as he has called us to. And next week, we'll specifically look at how the gospel transforms us to be salt and light. So what I want to do now is I want to ask the men to come forward, and we're going to do communion today. And we used to do communion on the first Sunday of the month, but now we desire to do communion on the last Sunday of the month so that when our children are with us, if it's okay with their parents, they may partake. Now, parents, I do, this is one area where you can exercise that discipleship and helping your children understand what is communion, letting them know why they cannot or they can partake of communion. You guys can go ahead and bring this over.